I can't breathe. We've heard that phrase over and over again the last several weeks. For some of you, you feel like you've heard it a hundred times, and for some of you, it's just beginning to sink in. But that phrase, it really reflects the value of a human life. C.S. Lewis said that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I can't breathe. That phrase erupted an outcry in our culture. And for many of us, it's a reminder that racism still brews inside the human heart with such extreme. I mean, we've, we've known that and we know it, but it's just brought it to the surface and brought it to our attention again in very stark ways. I mean, I would like to believe that I am not a racist. But I know and I admit and I have to check that there is often biases in me. I have to check if that's true or not and when that happens and when those creep up. And I got to acknowledge that I've benefited from some of the systems in our culture and I've sometimes feared what is different than me or other than me or something that maybe I don't understand. And, and I admit that I've often judged people incorrectly or prematurely. If we admit there are systems in our world, in our culture, different kinds of systems where some have benefited from and some have not benefited from, where some systems have been better for some and worse for others. I read a book several years ago called Divided by Faith, and it just it outlines the history of racism in, in America, but also in religion and in North America. And one illustration jumped out at me that the average white college grad graduates with $20,000 average of net worth. And yet the average black graduate graduates with $400 net worth. That's such a stark difference. And so it makes me realize how much I need to learn and posture myself to listen James, the brother of Jesus, challenges followers of Jesus in his letter in the New Testament to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and yet he calls all of us to be quick to listen. Now, he's teaching this in the context of what it means to be in relationship, in community, what it means to have a a mature character, but it's so important for the moment that we're in right now because so many of us want to speak so quickly, post so quickly, hashtag so quickly, talk so quickly, give our opinions for some of us, there's, there's an anger that's, that, that comes up in our conversations because it's our political view or our opinion or our background. And yet James says, be quick to listen. Listen to what? Listen to other people's experience. Listen to other people's story. Listen to someone else's pain or someone else's hurt or someone else's perspective. Perhaps listening to the facts that are so important. Listening to history or learning history or just understanding history. I was listening to my neighbor last week sitting uh, or standing in front of his driveway and um, super guy, he's about four houses down from me and he said something that I've heard several times from people in the black community and he described to me the talk that he had to have with his kids as they were getting older. And I've heard some of my friends talk about this and others speak about this. 
The talk you have with your kids when they're old enough to walk into the streets alone. The talk where you caution them to be extra careful and extra polite and extra submissive if a police stops them. And the talk that says, be careful, don't buy that that piece of clothing or those shoes or that car because you're going to bring attention to yourself that you don't want. You know, I never had that talk. My parents never gave me that talk. They didn't have to give me that talk. And as I listened to my neighbor, I realized that many parents have had to do that. Last week, we listened to Dina Smith. And I hope we learned something from her story, from her perspective, from her uh, understanding of racism in Canada. Some of the things she said maybe disturbed you. Some of the things she said, maybe you, you disagreed with her on an opinion level. Some of the things you might not understand by your own personal experience. And some of the things we need to still process and just let them sit with us for a while. And that's just listening and hearing someone out. But I want to go back to those words again. I can't breathe. And I want those words to be a reminder to us that every person we lock eyes with matters to God. And we understand in the biblical story, and I want to unpack this for the next few moments, there's anchor points in the biblical story that help us understand and underline this deep conviction. And it starts, you know where it starts? In the beginning. That's right. First pages of Genesis, it starts. Here's chapter 1, verse 27. It tells us that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's not only Christians who are made in God's image. It's not only Canadians who are made in God's image, or Europeans, or Africans, or Asians. And every person we lock eyes with is an image bearer of God. And, and I don't mean just like reflective of his creative, creative work. Like, oh, I love this plant. God, you're an amazing creator. Oh my gosh, look at that zebra. How cool is that? God's a cool creator. Oh, look at Joe. Joe's cool. God created him. No, 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 no. It's not that kind of reflection, but it's literally a reflection of God's nature. I want you to imagine that in the ancient world, when a temple was erected, they would place the image of the God inside the temple so the God would be reflected into that temple and people would know that God. Well, imagine now, step back a bit further and realize that God created the world, the cosmos, the universe, and we are standing living in his temple and he created image bearers for that temple, the world, creation. And God placed image bearers of himself in creation. That's you and me. That's everyone we lock eyes with. Now, here's a cool fact that maybe you've heard of. 99% of our DNA is exactly the same. 99.9% .9 of every human being on the planet, their DNA is exactly the same. Now, if we bring it down a notch by 0.9%, 99% of my DNA or your DNA is similar to a chimpanzee. That 0.9% is a big difference between us and chimps. Now, chimps probably look at us and wonder why humans treat each other the way they do and laugh. Bad joke. Anyways, here's 0.01%. That difference 
that maybe makes you, you, and me, me, and John Weaver, John Weaver, and uh, the people in our community, and your neighbor down the street, and the colleagues at your work. You know, some of us have more melanin than others. Some of, your, uh, some of the way your skin is, is kind of made, it, you know, like you get red when you tan or you get freckles when you tan or you cut the grass for 30 minutes and someone asks you if you've been to a hot place for a week because you tan so quickly. And then some people have, have uh, much more melanin than that and it makes their skin dark, brown or black or very, very dark. And that's just the way we're created. And yet, here's something I want us to catch that an image bearer, 99.9%, we are equal in our biology, in our neurology, in how we're made and how we're created. Every image bearer. And there's an inherent dignity in each person we lock eyes with. Now, if you think about that for a second, think about this. What is God's vision for his image bearers? What is God's vision for humanity? How would he want and envision humanity to function? What did he create us for? Now, I understand that there's a way that, that the church is shaped and followers of Jesus are shaped, but I also want us to understand God's heart when he created humanity. And here's a couple of things that I think we can include in God's vision for how humanity would function. The first thing is few words, three words I'm going to share. The first one is vocation. That, that God has given humanity a vocation. Still in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, says this, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden, check this out, to work it and take care of it. God has given responsibility to humans to care for the world, to cultivate the world, to continue building and developing and nurturing and cultivating God's creation. We call this stewardship stewardship for God's good creation. And that's your role and that's my role. And we function for that in a variety of different ways, but that helps us understand what we're doing on the planet. I don't mean just as Christians, I mean as humans. And there's a global sense to this too. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when, when God calls Abraham and begins to shape the beginning of Israel as a nation, he tells Abraham, all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Will be blessed through you. And that gets fulfilled in Christ. And Paul talks about it in Galatians 3 and, and, and how the whole world um, comes, is available, open, welcome to come to know God. But here's the second word. The first one was vocation. The second one is peace, or let's call it shalom. I like saying it in Hebrew. It's kind of cool. The word shalom means to be complete or to mean be whole. Or if you imagine like a co complex pieces that all work well together. If you've put a puzzle together and then you finally finish, you're like, oh, shalom, you know? Or you've built a rock garden or something and you've kind of put the last rock in place and the last piece of last flower in place you step back and you're like oh that's a good piece of work that's complete there's all these pieces are working together really really nicely that's kind of what shalom means in hebrew when someone says how are you or are you well they're they're basically asking you like are you shalom are you are you well do you feel good and if you broke something, you'd want to shalom it. You want to you fix it. If, if you back into your neighbor's car, you're like, oh, what can I do? How much is that going to cost? $400. Okay, let me shalom this. Here's $400. Let's repair this issue. Let's be good between us. Let's make sure that we're okay. If a relationship is broken, you want to shalom the relationship. You want to bring the broken pieces together. Well, 
Isaiah 9, verse 5 and 6, tells us that God's Messiah would be the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace, that he would restore and reconcile what is broken, that he would make all things right. That's where Jesus fits into the story. But Shalom is, is part of how God desired humanity to function. Another word is justice. Justice means fair treatment or you know, like how we treat one another, not based on money, not based on status, not based on ethnicity, not based on any of that stuff, but a, share, but a fair treatment of another human being based on the fact that they are God's image bearer. When God was shaping Israel to be a nation, he shaped them to treat each other in this way, but not just each other, to treat the foreigner too. Deuteronomy 16, 19 uses this word when it says, cursed is anyone who withholds justice, not from an Israelite, who? From a foreigner, from the fatherless, from the widow. And we read that God would instruct Israel to, to pursue justice and to act justly among themselves, among the foreigners, even among those that they would be in exile with. Check this out, because Israel made provision so the poor would not be left behind in the system. We see this in place in Israel through their gleaning system and through other things like that. They, were, they built these huts called huts of refuge or houses of refuge because when a foreigner would come in their land, they made sure that the foreigner had somewhere to stay so that when it was dark at night, it wasn't dangerous for them. So they would not fall prey to robbers and thieves and things like that. They did that for foreigners. This is what blows me away. When Israel and part of the nation was in Babylon, in exile, under Babylonian rule, God tells them in Jeremiah 29, seek the shalom and the prosperity of that city. Seek the shalom of that city. He also says, hey guys, build houses, grow families. What's that? Cultivate, care for, it's your vocation. Contribute, bring, keep making things better there. And he says, seek the prosperity and the peace of that city. Interesting, he doesn't just say, seek your prosperity, seek your shalom. No, seek the shalom of the city. And do it fairly, in just and fair ways. Don't just do it for you. Do it for others. Because, why? If you prosper, everyone prospers. And God's saying this in all these different examples. The poor among you matter. Right? At one point, God looks at the poor and realizes that they're important. The poor among you matter. He looks at the foreigner and tells Israel, the foreigner among you matters. He looks at Israel, even in exile, and says, hey, the Babylonians, they matter. And if they matter to you, and you live like it's true, then you're all going to prosper. In, in fact, God actually got upset with Israel when Israel didn't lift up justice. It was often rebuke that came from the Lord, that it came to the prophets. Isaiah 58 is a great reminder of this. Read the whole chapter today on your own or later this week. But here's a, kind of a nutshell version of it. You want to fast, God says? You want to worship? Okay, break the chains of injustice. He basically says, it's not worth that much. Your, your worship, your fasting, your religious ceremony is not worth that much if you're allowing the chains of injustice to grow like weeds among you. If you're going to fast... Work against injustice. If you're going to worship, break the chains of injustice. Then I'll hear your prayers. Ouch. Ooh. 
God said that to Israel. So here's the obvious idea here. Light and injustice don't go hand in hand. You can't be the light to the nations if you're, not, if you're unjust or you're pursuing injustice. You can't. They just don't mix. They just don't work. This leads us to Jesus. When Jesus first was first heard in a Jewish synagogue, and the gospel writers record this. Luke actually records it in Luke chapter 4. He opens up the scroll. And as he opens up the scroll, it lands on in Isaiah 61. I mean, I think, like, couldn't Jesus have picked up, like, number 6? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Amen. Good night. Thank you, God. That's cool. Or couldn't he have like picked up like Psalm 91? The Lord is a shelter to the most high. Like he takes care of his kids and like different Psalms like that to just, you know, comfort us and make us feel good. No. Opens the scroll. It lands on Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Closes the scroll and says, hey, today this was fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. This is my job. This is my role. This is why I'm here. Just, just think for a second. God's clearest representation on earth, like the best of the best, the most clearest image bearer of all times, Jesus, right? What does he come to do? Bring shalom and justice. Bring shalom and justice. That's his part of his role. And that's part of the extension of the church, too, to live into this. Now, here is the temptation and the danger for you and me. And I know that I had to wrestle with this over the years, is, is sometimes the temptation and the danger is to make a text like that overly spiritual. Can it fit into how God wants to transform your heart and transform your mind and, and bring change into your life? For sure. But the temptation is often to overly spiritualize that when we look at the world around us and to completely leave out the practical or the tangible. You know who made this mistake? Slave owners in the 18th century. They made this mistake. They were apparently Christians who came here from Europe, went to church on Sundays, read their Bible, and some of these Christian slave owners from the 18th century, uh, I've read accounts of them in several different books. In fact, even in the book that I, I quoted, that I'm going to quote in a second. And at the time, they, they didn't see maybe, I don't want to say this, I don't know, but I, I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt, that they didn't see maybe what they were doing was unlawful to God's image bearers. And it was so, such a stark contrast from what we've just read that, listen to this, they didn't even preach the gospel to them because they believed that the slaves didn't have the same value as they had. 
that the slaves didn't have the same value as white people. So they didn't bother preaching the gospel to them. They didn't even think they had that much value. Now that eventually changed. That eventually shifted. And they believed that the slaves should hear the gospel. But this was their dilemma. This was their dilemma. They knew that if they preached the gospel to them, and these slaves, some of them became Christians, that they would get baptized. And that baptism, you know what it would mean? It would mean an inner freedom and forgiveness that could erupt and overflow into what? maybe other parts of their life. And they became afraid that these slaves that would be baptized would want more than spiritual freedom. You see what's going on here? I want to read something to you. Here's a baptismal vow, part of a baptismal vow from an ordained missionary for slaves to be read during their baptism. And this is what they would have to recite. That you declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for the holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake in the graces and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? They had to make a vow that they would not see anything in their baptism that was beyond an inner transformation. That was over-spiritualizing what was going on and not letting it affect their lives. The slave owners were like, this doesn't have to affect us. This doesn't have to touch us. I want to ask you a question. I know that's the 18th century. Things have changed since then, thank God. And there were other Christians who were part of that change, who were part of emancipation, who were part of, of, um, of, of, of abolishing slavery. I want to ask you this question. Where are you, or where am I, in danger of merely spiritualizing the effects of the gospel in my life or in my world around me? Or maybe where are you or I ever in danger of not allowing the gospel to bring change to either ourselves or the systems that we depend on or the systems that we even, that we even benefit from? When do we fall into danger of spiritualizing the gospel and not letting it implicate our lives and implicate our decisions and implicate the world around us. God wants to change our hearts, but he wants to change our lives. And he wants there to be pockets of the kingdom that the church lives into and expresses. And he calls us. He calls us to be those kind of people in the world. I want to close this way today. I want us to just sit with the contrast of what we just read, or maybe the contrast to some of the realities going on in our world still today with God's vision. We, we painted a picture of God's vision. I want us to sit with the contrast of, between God's vision and reality in our world. Let me just summarize it really quickly. Every person we lock eyes with is an image bearer, right? God's global vision for humanity 
included a vocation to care for the world, to, care, to, 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 to nurture the world, a shalom, a peace, a, a completeness, a well-being, and a sense of justice. That was his desire. Jesus came to fulfill God's vision and to call us into it. Now, for sure, we can say, well, the world's broken. They need God. The world's broken. They can, it'll never get fixed. And we understand that the, the fullness of God's restoration will not happen on this side of eternity. But we have God's vision right before us, what he desires, what he longs for, what he intends. And if we see that vision clearly, we must also sit with the contrast and understand that there is a contrast. And before we do anything else, let's sit with the contrast and even not just in our world, but maybe even the contrast in our own hearts and our own lives and our own decisions, and let's lament. Let's lament if there's a contrast and where there's a contrast. Let's sit with it. Let's sit with that. Now you might think, well, what does that do for the world? Is that even good news for the world? I believe that our lament can sometimes be good news for the world. Why? Because they will see a humble church. They will see a repentant church. They will see a church that weeps for the brokenness in themselves and the brokenness in the world. And it will remind us that the only salvation for brokenness is in Jesus, who came to fulfill God's justice, God's shalom, God's peace, God's vocation for the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we first thank you for this incredible, glorious vision. God, who are we humans? 99.9% equal in our DNA. God, we are all, every color, shape, tribe, nation, are your image bearers. God, what a glorious vision that you've given us. What a glorious way for us to understand the person we lock eyes with at any moment and any day. And God, we thank you for that. That it, it's something you long for for humanity. Lord, may we weep and may we lament the contrast that we see in the world around us. But even more importantly, let us start with ourselves. If there is any contrast, rebellion, sin, that prevents this even growing in our own lives, as Christ followers, God, we lament that first and we come to you and confess. And we trust that you will do your work and we want to be ambassadors of Jesus in our world. We want to share your goodness and we want to share your good news. We know that that's the only hope for a world that's lost and broken. But let us also be people who reflect it out. So we pray this, God, in Jesus' name and trust that you'll lead us step by step by your Holy Spirit. Amen.